You are listening to the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc. Would you all stand to your feet this morning and honor Pastor Dave as he comes to bring the word? Thank you, Jesus. Thank you. Thank you. You can go ahead and sit down. Thank you so much. It is good to be here. I saw Drew and Tanya yesterday with their kids. You guys got such beautiful kids. Seriously. And uh, saw them at the Send, and I thought, man, they are awesome, bringing your little babies out there in that hot weather. I was in the shade the whole day, and I still got sunburned. It was a long day, but it was, it was awesome, and it was just a pleasure to be there. And, uh, and man, to be here with, in worship this morning. You guys have something special here. I hope you realize that. Uh, this, this, it's amazing. The, the environment that you've cultivated uh, through worship and through intercession is wonderful. And so I want to just talk about that this morning. Uh, I've, got, I've got several different things going through my head. So let's pray that God will enable me to stay on track because I know you have to eat lunch. And uh, so, Father, we thank you. Lord, I thank you for LifePoint. I thank you that truly is a point of life for Ames and the surrounding communities. And Lord, I thank you for the significant thing you're building in the spirit. And Lord, I ask this morning that you would help me, you'd grace me to define for them what you're doing here so that they would more thoroughly understand who they are as a church. In Jesus' name, amen. I couldn't agree with Pastor Drew more. And I, I love this man. You guys are blessed to have good leaders here. And uh, I, I love this man and appreciate his, his leadership. Uh, and I couldn't agree with him more on the, the fact that uh, there are, every region needs multiple churches. There is no such thing as a one-stop Jesus shop. No one church can do all that God has called them to do, any more than one person can. You know, we all understand that there are individual callings, that it's our history, our gifting, uh, what, what the devil meant for bad, God weaves into good, and that forms us into who we are in the present and really identifies our assignment in life. Well, that's true of churches as well. And uh, so there's, there, there's such a thing as individual callings and corporate callings. And I think it's very healthy for a church to understand the unique calling of that particular body of people, that particular church. And there is a unique call on this church. I don't know all of it. I don't, you know, I've, I've, uh, I, I don't have an idea. I don't have a, a read on all that God has called you to, but I do know one thing, because God showed me something. Uh, we had a women's conference, and uh, some of your gals came, and uh, your pastor's wife, I, I didn't even know who you were at the moment, I don't think, when I first, I think someone had just introduced me to you, and uh, when I laid hands on her, I saw something about this church, and I want to share it with you this morning, because uh, it's one thing to bump into things in the spirit, if you will, to kind of bump into your destiny and just kind of stumble into it. Uh, and that's good. You can, you can fulfill a measure of what God's called you to by just kind of stumbling into that. And a lot of us do that. But you can be much more engaged, much more intentional if you understand what God has called you to. You can be a con- put that to a conscious level. And so what I saw over this church as I laid my hands on Tanya was I saw a throne over Ames. And I saw a light beginning to rise and what I felt was God, I felt the pleasure of the Lord over this house that he now has a place where there is prayer, there's intercessory worship rising to the throne and I saw something gaining ascendancy. There was an authority God was gonna begin to leverage in this city. And I believe it's coming out of this house and I, I know it is. And so I wanna kinda try to develop uh, Connect the dots for you. I want to I connect some theological dots for you to, to, for you to understand what God is doing in this house. He's establishing prophetic intercessory worship. Even as we uh, were in worship this morning, I loved it, man. I, could, I told Pastor Drew, I said, I could go home full right now. It was amazing. You guys, there's, there's an environment. I hope you realize what you have because not every church has this. And you can go to other places. You know, a lot of times we get so used to what we have, we don't realize what we have until we don't have it anymore. Don't make God take it away from you for you to value what you got here. Uh, the environment here in worship was so precious. 
And in the midst of that, our sister over here gets a prophetic word. She has a vision. There's, there's this, this mixture, this partnership between the prophetic intercession and worship that becomes a swirling activity of heaven that God uses to begin to do his work in a region. And you guys carry that mantle as a church. I want to throw two phrases to you, and, and you guys are aware of at least one of these. You know, there's, there's this idea of worship as warfare. We understand that intuitively, if not consciously. We know that as we worship the Lord, warfare happens. But in the same, the same heart as that, the same idea there, is that intimacy itself is an act of intercession. That as we move in intimacy with God, we're really taking a stand in our region. And you can, I'm, I'm gonna, if you want to turn with me to Psalm 132, we're going to jump in there, but I want to quote just a couple of verses to you. In Exodus 22, I want to, or Exodus 32 rather, uh, Moses, it, it, I, I would say this is the zenith in all of history, of the, uh, the zenith act of, of intercession. It is the most profound intercessory session in all of human history, aside from the cross. And Moses is with God, and God has had his, he's, he's fed up with Israel, and he tells the, Moses, he said, he says, I've seen what these stiff-necked people have done, uh, I'm done with them, and then he says this in verse, I want to say it's verse 10, he said, leave me alone that my anger may burn, and I will make a great nation out of you. Now, we can be so used to reading through the scriptures that we don't allow it to impact us and really stop and listen to what's going on there. Can you imagine you are a leader, not just of a church, of a nation that you have given your life to lead out of Egypt, Egyptian slavery and God tells you, leave me alone. Have you ever had the Lord tell you that in prayer? Where you're drawing close to the Lord and the Lord said, leave me alone. That's a sobering statement. And then he gives them the reason why. Leave me alone that my anger may burn and I will make a great nation out of you. Now, most people would have been flattered by that. We'd be talking about not the nation of Israel, but the nation of Mo. It would, they were, God was gonna make a whole nation out of Moses, but Moses was an intercessor. He stood in the gap for his people and he would have none of it. Now, the amazing thing is when God said, leave me alone, that my anger may burn, Moses did not obey that. God told him, leave me alone. And Moses didn't do it. Because Moses had intimacy with the Lord and he knew the heart behind the statement. When you lack intimacy, you can misinterpret what God is saying. You can miss what the Lord is really saying. Because Moses knew the heart of God, he knew the desire of God. And he knew what God was saying. He was giving Moses a little hint. He said, leave me alone that my anger may burn. What he was saying is, if you leave me alone, then I can unleash my anger, my wrath on an entire nation. And Moses saw a crack in the door and he understood, oh, so you have to be alone in order for that to happen? And Moses, in that moment, dug his heels in and said, then I'm not going to leave you alone. And rather than being grieved and displeased with Moses, God loved that in Moses' heart. We, we as a people, especially as Pentecostal people, we need to know how to steward not only prophecy, but prophecies of judgment. Because this was a prophecy of judgment coming directly from God. And Moses didn't have to weigh it and say, I wonder if this is from the Lord. You know, I'm going to weigh this and check it against the word. It was God speaking to him. God said, I'm going to destroy these people. But prophecies of judgment are not an expression of divine desire. They're an expression sometimes of divine, dis divine intent. God was telling him what he was going to do, but not what he wanted to do. And because Moses knew the Lord, he could side with God's higher desires, and he saved a nation in intercession. It's an amazing thing. I remember as a young believer, I got saved in 1983. I was a homeless alcoholic living on the streets and met Jesus and 
Uh, my dad was a pastor, so I had that in my background, and I, I got radically saved. And so I started reading this guy, David Wilkerson. Anybody remember David Wilkerson? And David Wilkerson's material. Matter of fact, I went through Teen Challenge and worked there for about 14 years, and David had started that ministry. But I read David Wilkerson's newsletters. I've got binders full of them to this day, had them categorized. And I loved David's ministry, but I lacked the intimacy to be able to interpret what he was saying. And so when I would read, when David was warning of judgment on America, I looked at it as though God was, this was inevitable and this was his desire. Now I understand it wasn't an inevitability, it was an invitation to contend with him in intercession so that God would withhold his hand. And what Moses discovered in this passage is that God was inviting him to step in the gap. God wanted to preserve the nation. And God's doing that here. There's this, see this intimacy, Moses' intimacy in and of itself, his determination to stay in God's presence was a preserving element in his relationship with God and in Israel's relationship with God. It caused God to withhold his hand because God cannot judge when he has people that are in his presence contending for them. And so God had to withhold his hand and an entire nation was saved. If you read on in this passage, God says, okay, Moses, I won't kill him. And he says, but I'm not gonna go with you into the promised land. I'm gonna send an angel with you and because I can't, I can't be with these people. I'll have to judge them. And Moses, is, he's having none of it. He says, God, if you don't go with us, and God says, okay, I will. And Moses runs right by the answer. And he says, he keeps saying, Lord, if you're not gonna go with us, we're not going. And, and God has to grab him by the collar and pull him back and said, I already answered your prayer, if you read the text. And he said, okay, I'm gonna go with you. And the very next thing out of Moses' mouth was, show me your glory. I mean, this guy had some gall most of us would have been satisfied with saving a nation through intercession one day. That was my day's job, but not Moses. Saved a nation, secured the presence of the Lord for that nation, and the next thing out of his mouth is, God, I've got to see your glory. And that hunger in Moses' heart, and it's what we were touching in worship this morning, that hunger was the secret of Moses' intercession. And so intimacy itself is an act of intercession and worship itself is an act of warfare. But it's an indirect act of warfare and even an indirect act of intimacy. What do I mean by that? Warfare for warfare's sake will get, make you a weird Christian. If you come in, I wanna go into warfare, then you end up getting your eyes on the enemy and losing sight of the answer. And you will literally worship or pray yourself into unbelief and into frustration. We do need to understand that there is this element of warfare and intercession for our nation that we enter into. But it's, it's really a, 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 a side issue or a result of our intimacy where the goal, we've got to keep the main thing the main thing and that is entertaining the presence of God. When it comes to worship as warfare, uh, we've all heard the phrase, if you've been raised in church, if you've been around church any time at all, and I can't imagine with what I felt here this morning, you guys haven't quoted that verse out of Psalm 22. I want to say it's verse 4. God inhabits the praises of his people Israel, or he enthrones himself in the praises of his people Israel. It's translated both ways. The Japanese version says when God's people worship, he brings a chair in and sits among them. It's a beautiful picture. So God has given us this gift. He says, I got a chair for you, and I promise you, if you carry it into your services, I will come and occupy that chair. And from there, I'll begin to extend my scepter and do things in your midst. So God inhabits our praises. But if you look at the two previous verses, it's the psalm that Jesus quotes from the cross when he says, my God, my God, why have you forsaken me? I've cried out to you, but you have not answered. But God inhabits the praises of his people Israel. And if you put those, that stream of thought together, you realize that worship is at its best when you're struggling the most. 
that when you feel like God has forsaken you, that that's when your worship is the weightiest. And that's when things really begin to move in the spirit. So let's look at Psalm 132. If I can get my computer to cooperate here. Psalm 132. Listen to verse 1. Remember, O Lord, in David's favor all the hardships he endured. I was reading that passage some time back, and uh, I don't remember which version it was. It says, O Lord, remember David and the suffering he endured. There's different translations say it different way. Now, I'm convinced that this passage was written by Solomon, and you'll find out I'm right when we get to heaven. If you look when Solomon dedicated the temple in 1 Kings chapter, and I, want to, I think it's 1 Kings, uh, some of the same phrases are utilized. And if you realize what Solomon is saying, you realize why he would pray this prayer at the dedication of the temple. So listen to what he says again. He says, O Lord, remember David, or O Lord, in David's favor, remember all the hardships he endured. So stop there. This is a man, I think it was Solomon. It's clearly saying, remember David. It's after David is gone. And this guy is using the sufferings of a dead guy to move the heart of God. He's reminding God of something that a guy went through that is now deceased, and he's using it as intercessory leverage to make God move in the present. That is an intriguing thought to me. I mean, I can look back at some of the forefathers and appreciate what they did, but I had never thought of using their suffering the price they paid as leverage to move the heart of God. But that's exactly what's going on in this passage. I remember uh, Lou Engle had written a book called, uh, oh, I don't remember the name. It's a blue book. But uh, anyway, the Lord began to deal with him about how he's going to move in this nation because of the covenant God that Jonathan Edwards moved into with God. Jonathan Edwards was a uh, he was the first president of Princeton University, a tremendous revivalist. Some still believe he was one of the greatest philosophers America ever produced and one of the greatest theologians. It was in colonial America, and uh, they saw a tremendous move of God. And the Lord began to deal with them that I'm going to move in this nation because of the covenant of Jonathan Edwards, because the, these, the, this generation goes back and has its roots in this man. And uh, so... Lou was thinking about that and praying about that and just thought, man, that's an amazing thought. And so he was traveling to a church that night, a youth meeting, and he was going to preach on that. So he's sitting on the front row and he's thinking about his, the, the title of his message is, God's going to move in your life because you're the great, 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 great grandchildren of Jonathan Edwards. And so he's praying about it on the front row. And before he gets up, this young man comes to him and says, Lou, I got to tell you something. I just found out this week. I am the great, 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 great grandson of Jonathan Edwards. And it was a little prophetic punctuation for Lou that he's on to something. What Lou discovered through the prophetic is embedded in this scripture. That God is moved by our sufferings and the sufferings of our forefathers. And we can learn to leverage that in prayer. Now, I'm not, I'm not so much talking this morning, but it'd be something good for you to look into. I'm not so much talking about leveraging somebody else's sufferings in intercession as we remind the Lord. It, it's similar when I, I'll get out our wedding photos from my wife got mar- and I got married in, I think 33 years ago, I think. And uh, luckily that's, those things aren't a real big deal to her, but it's 33, 34 years ago, somewhere in there. And uh, I see our pictures. My wife really looks the same. She could still fit into her wedding dress. And I look so different. Man, I, my beard was dark. I had color in my beard. I had these glasses that looked like two windshields put side by side with wires, you know, and uh, the really funky looking, you know, tucks. And, but I look at those, and those images conjure up that affection the day we entered into covenant together. And it stirs my heart all over again for my bride. And that's the similar thing that's going on here as Solomon prays to the Lord. Lord, remember my dad. Remember the price he paid. And Father, I'm asking that you move in my generation because of the price he paid in the previous one. 
And he was inspired by the Spirit of God to do so. Your suffering matters to the Lord. And your worship is at its weightiest when you're going through a hard time. The surest way to build a throne of authority, a throne of God's authority in your life, from which he can begin to rule and reign and move in your life, the surest way to do that is when you're going through a hard time, you worship him, you exalt him, you lift him up. And when you do that, you're providing something for the Lord to move from. Look at on verse 2 here. How, so he says, Lord, remember David, the suffering endured, how he swore to the Lord and bowed to the mighty one of Jacob. I will not enter my house or get into my bed. I will not give sleep to my eyelids or slumber, slumber to my eyes until I find a place for the Lord, a dwelling place for the Lord, the mighty one of Jacob. And so he's, he's saying, Lord, he suffered in his pursuit of your presence and he made a vow that I want you to remember and I want you to make good on my dad's vow in this generation. And then he says this, Behold, we heard about it in Ephathra. We found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to the dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. I believe this passage is really the backstory on David's journey. And David's life really doesn't make sense until you understand this passage. You cannot read the Bible without coming away with the conviction that God loved King David. Centuries later, God would make this statement, for the sake of my servant David, I will do this thing. So that, that moves me. There's a jealousy that rises in my heart. I want to posture my life in such a way that in generations to come, not only my kids will remember me, but God will say, because of Dave Olson, the decisions he made in those hard times, I'm going to be, make good on this thing. I'm going to do this thing. There's an invitation for us to posture ourselves in that way and move the heart of God. And David did it. And so David, you know, we, we know in the Proverbs that Solomon said, I sat at my, my father's knee and his dad would teach him lessons. Well, we also know from this passage that David told him about his pursuit of God's presence. When he says, we heard about it in Ephrathah, we found it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. The footstool of the Lord was the Ark of the Covenant. It was the place where God said, I will dwell between the cherubim. And David is telling his son, he said, he said Solomon, when I was a young man, I heard about the ark in Ephathra. We came upon it in the fields of Jar. Now, Ephathra is another word for the city of Bethlehem, which was also referred to by the angels, by the way, as the city of David. It's intriguing to me. There's two Two cities in Scripture which are referred to as the city of David. One is referred to as the city of David by the angels, and that was Bethlehem. On the first Christmas, the angels said, in the city of David. It's the city that produced this great man. And then there's Jerusalem, which is also referred to as the city of David, and it's the city that great man produced. And just as a side note, I, that intrigues me. I think the angels look at cities through the lens of the the men and women who produced them and who those cities produced. And there's affection even in heaven for these cities because David was produced or produced them. He said, we can't, I heard about it in Ephrathah. So what had happened is under Saul's reign, David was born. Here, I'll tell you what. Let me, let me give you a little, little uh, history lesson here if I can find some notes. I did a study on this some years back. Okay, here's, here's how this thing works. The ark resided in the tabernacle in Shiloh under the priesthood of Eli. It was retrieved by Saul for the purpose of war in the 29th year of his 42nd year reign. God rejected Shiloh according to Psalm 78 verse 60, a probable reference to this scenario. It was captured and retained by the Philistines for seven months. It went to Beth Shemesh for a short time, and they refused it after opening it, losing it, losing over 50,000 people. Then they called the men of Cariath Jerem. It was 1 Samuel verse, or chapter 6, verse 21 and 7 1. And Jar is a reference, is another phrase for the, the place of Cariath Jerem. So when David said, I heard about it in Cariath, uh, 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 
Bethlehem, and then we came upon it in the fields of Jar. As a young man, David heard these rumors that the Ark of the Covenant was near him. Cariath Jerem was a few miles outside of the city. And so David, he was hungry. He heard about this ark and he came upon it in the fields of Jar. David, as a young man, visited the Ark of the Covenant. And I believe that explains the life of David because one encounter ruined him for life. David never recovered from that one encounter. And from then on, David was hooked. You see, David was a young man rejected of his own earthly father. We don't know all the details, but there was some kind of, of uh, friction between him and his dad. Some, some scholars, I, I tend to believe that they're right. Some scholars believe David was the result of an adulterous relationship that his father Jesse had. And when David said, in sin I was conceived, he wasn't referring to original sin, but rather his dad's indiscretion. And that would make sense. It would tell us why, when Samuel comes, that he leaves David out on the back 40. The last thing you want when there's a prophet around is the human reminder of your adulterous relationship. And so David has this weird relationship with his dad, rejected of his father. He's out on the back 40 with his, his harp, and it says, he writes the psalm, God sets the lonely in families. He is a father to the fatherless. And David develops this relationship with God. He's ruined for life. He's out in the fields with the sheep and David hears a rumor, the ark of God is near. David, being a good Jewish boy, has some, some understanding of what the ark was and there was something in him that wanted to be around it and he said, I came upon it in the fields of Jar. He tells his boy Solomon and it's in the context of his explaining I would give my eyes no sleep until I could provide a resting place for that ark. And so he's explaining what happened. So Saul reigned 42 years. David was 30 when Saul died. So that means David was born in the 12th year of Saul's reign when Saul was approximately 54. So David was 17 to 18 years old when the ark was moved to Jar, where it resided for the next 10, 12 to 13 years until David moved it to Obed-Edom's house for three months and on into Jerusalem. So therefore, it tells us David was about 17 or 18 years old when the ark arrived around the time that he faced Goliath. I don't think that's a coincidence. When the ark of the presence arrives in a region, the heroes will arise. Something happened in this young man in that encounter that gave him a conviction that when he heard Goliath defaming his God's name, something rose up in him and he stepped into this heroic episode that brought him onto the national platform and then invited a lot of persecution. But it was the presence, encountering the presence. So let's read on here in Psalm 132. So he says, we heard about it in Ephathra, we came upon it in the fields of Jar. Let us go to his dwelling place. Let us worship at his footstool. Arise, O Lord, and go to your resting place, you and the ark of your might. So Solomon's back to praying, and he's saying, God, remember David, remember his vow, remember what he went through, remember how he was ruined by his original encounter, and now, Lord, return to the ark, return to your resting place, because I've provided a place for it. I've built a place for that, and I'm asking God that you would fill this place and let it not just be some empty structure that's a monument to you, void of you. He's saying, God, return to this place. Let your priests be clothed with righteousness. Your saints shout for joy for the sake of your servant David. Do not turn away from the face of your anointed one. And there we have it. This is why I am convinced this is Solomon. Listen to what he says. Verse 10, for the sake of your servant David, again, he knows, God, my dad captured your heart. He hooked you. And you are vulnerable to his desires because of the price he paid and the intimacy he walked in with you. And I'm saying for his sake, do not forget your anointed one because now Solomon was the anointed one. And he's saying, God, keep your promise to my dad and keep his son upon the throne. Verse 11, the Lord swore to David an oath from which he will not turn back. One of, your sons, one of the sons of your body I will set on your throne. If your sons keep my covenant and my testimonies, then I shall teach them. Their sons also forever shall sit on your throne. 
For the Lord has chosen Zion. And so he's reminding the Lord these things. Now that phrase there is an interesting phrase in verse 13. Because if you cross-reference what Solomon prayed, many of the same things in this passage at the dedication of the temple, but there's one difference. At the temple, he says to the Lord, you didn't choose a city for your name. But in this passage, he says he did. But in the other passage, he says, you didn't choose a city, but you chose my servant David, your servant David. And so what he's saying is that David chose Jerusalem. David was fascinated with Jerusalem. And there's a reason for that. And it goes back to Melchizedek. I'll just plant that seed and you can chase that down. But there was something about David. See, David had a vision. Okay, I'm going to go there. David had a vision for this thing of a priest king. Psalm 24. David cries this out. Who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? David's asking a question no one should ask because everybody already knows the answer. You had to be a Levite. Consensus theology already settled that issue. But David is asking questions outside the boundaries. There's something in David when he bumped into the presence. Something happened within him and he met the father he didn't have. And God became a father to this fatherless boy. And there was something in David said, God, I know you, and you would never leave me out. I can't get in biologically. I wasn't born from the right tribe. So he asked, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can enter the holy place? How can I get in? And David's hunger, which caused him to ask questions nobody else was asking, brought him into revelation nobody else had. And David found a back door into the Holy of Holies. He found another priesthood. David said, who can ascend the hill of the Lord? Who can stand in his holy place? And he defines a new priesthood. He doesn't say you got to be born of the right tribe. He said, he who has clean hands, a pure heart, who does not lift his soul to an idol or swear by what is false. And he gives the criteria to an entirely new priesthood. You see, David mentioned this priesthood in Psalm 110. He said of the Messiah, you are a priest in the order of Melchizedek. See, David had a revelation. Moses understood. Moses wrote the book of Genesis. Abram, the father of faith, Abraham, sacrificed, and he, uh, he gave an offering. He tithed, the writer of Hebrews says, to Melchizedek, who it says in Genesis is a priest of the Most High God. So Abram recognized him as a priest of the Most High God. We don't know much about this fella, but we know he was a priest, and Abraham uh, tithed to him. Moses recognized him as a priest, but David had a further revelation. These two guys didn't. David understood this man was not an anomaly. He was an order. There was an order of priesthood. You see, there was the Levitical priesthood, which was the temporary one, and there was the Levitical priesthood, which was the eternal one. And that's why David lived as a new covenant man under the old covenant. David wore a linen ephod. He ate of the showbread. David did things that was off limits to an old covenant individual that was off limits to anybody but a priest. And David stepped into that. When Saul did that, God spanked him and took the kingdom from him. When David did those things, God commended him. Why? Because David did it by revelation and obedience and Saul did it by arrogance. So David, when he sins and he has Bathsheba's husband Uriah bumped off in battle. He was guilty of murder and adultery. The only two sins under the old covenant for which there was no sacrifice. You were the sacrifice. You're a dead man. But David has the audacity in Psalm 51 to cry out for mercy for this sin. And David 
steps into the new covenant reality and lives as a new covenant man under the old covenant and finds forgiveness. This explains why David would set up this tabernacle that didn't have the three-court system that came as direct revelation from God to Moses. Solomon built one, Moses built one, but the interim tabernacle was David's pup tent and that's the one that God longingly looks back at and says, that's what I'm going to rebuild. And I believe that David, when he understood this Melchizedek priesthood, he saw this guy as a priest king. And you know where he ruled from? Salem, which would eventually become Jerusalem. You ever wondered why when David killed Goliath, he took his head gruesome picture, grabbed it by the hair, threw it over his back, and he ventured to the Jebusite stronghold called Jerusalem, and he put it there. That's a weird thing to do. Why would he do that? I believe because David was making a statement in the spirit, I'm coming for this city next, because he understood that in that city there was a throne occupied by a king priest And David had a revelation that he was a king priest. And it was a precursor of what you and I are to operate in. We are king priests. We don't come before the throne by the Levitical priesthood. We come by the Melchizedek priesthood. And we are kings with authority, but priests who also stand between. Before God, we represent the people. And before the people, we represent God. And David understood this. David entered into this revelation. And so David started what he established, what God longingly referred to as the tabernacle of David. And he said, I will restore David's fallen tent. In David's worship, God's presence was entertained night and day. That's why we have the psalm that says, Come bless the Lord, all you servants of the Lord who stand by night in the house of the Lord. David had men and women who would just worship the Lord around the clock. And out of that came exponential increase and the boundaries of Israel began to expand because they built a throne and God came and would begin to rule and reign from that throne. And Solomon had at least a limited understanding of this and so he pens this psalm saying, God, don't lift your hand off our nation. Remember David and the sufferings he endured and continue to have your hand upon our nation. Lord, let your presence reside upon us. All that we're talking about this morning, the tabernacle of David, prophetic intercessory worship, worship as warfare, intimacy as intercession, I'm telling you, it's what God wants to establish in this house. And it's not so much trying to go to warfare. It's keep doing what you're already doing. There is, there's this value system that you guys have cultivated for the presence of God. This beautiful value system as you begin to worship and God responds. I felt it immediately when I came in here at nine o'clock when we started worship. It was beautiful. And what God is doing is he is he's establishing a lampstand in this region, through this place. And God's going to do things, even in other churches, because of the worship that goes on in this place, if you'll keep keep going after it. Look at what he says in verse 13. For the Lord said, Lord has chosen Zion. He has desired it for his dwelling place. Again, God didn't choose Zion. God chose David, and David chose Zion because David saw its significance. I don't have to say, I don't have to say, God, I want to pastor where you choose. I just need to posture myself. God, you choose me. I choose Ankeny. You choose Ames. And together we'll see this region be touched by the presence of God. He said, this is my resting place forever. Here I will dwell for I have desired it. He's, he's saying what his father told him, God told him. I will abundantly bless her provisions. I will satisfy her poor with bread. Her priests I will clothe with salvation and her saints will shout for joy. There I will make a horn sprout for David, and I have prepared a lamp for my anointed. His enemies I will clothe with shame. 
from this time forth forevermore. And that's what I saw that day when I prophesied over your pastor's wife. I saw this lampstand, and I didn't fully understand it at the time. You see this throughout Scripture. God warns the churches of Revelation, I will remove your lampstand. You can have a church without a lampstand. He didn't say, I'm going to shut the church down. I'm just going to remove the lampstand. The lampstand is the prophetic witness, which makes it register in the spiritual realm, which makes impact in the spirit. And God was going to put a lamp there until the horn of David emerged. The strength of David would grow. And I want to encourage you, this region, our church, the other churches around this region, need you to stay the course in what you're doing, to cultivate that presence. Even the hires you guys have made have, have been indicative of your value system. And if you guys will stay the course, I'm telling you, it's going to make a difference in this region. And understand that your worship is at its greatest in the hardest times. Years ago, we uh, were in a board meeting and, and uh, we got done early, which was a sign and a wonder. So I'm like, this is amazing. Let's pray. And so I stood up and I started walking around and just praying. I just thought, I'll lay hands on these guys. And well, we got some wonderful elders and I laid hands on the first guy and uh, prayed for him. And I always feel sorry for the first people you pray for because things just aren't flowing, you know. <laughs> so I prayed for him, didn't get anything and prayed for the next guy. And and I, I think it was the third fellow, I laid my hands on him and I saw him in the spirit. Now, he's, I knew he was an intercessor, but I never saw him like this. He was this huge battering ram. Now, he's a best-selling author. He's written books that you know, have, have sold hundreds of thousands of copies, but that's a side gig because I'm telling you, in the spirit, this guy is a battering ram. It was huge, and I was blown away. I told him. I went to the next guy, and I saw this fella. He was at a keyboards many years ago, weeping and crying. And I saw him in the middle of the night and he was worshiping the Lord. And I was just, it broke me. I was so drawn to it. And I realized that's why he carries what he carries. His name is Rick Arrowwood. Rick led our house of prayer for many years and just a, a heart for worship. But many decades ago, as a youth pastor working for his father, who was, became the district superintendent for the assemblies years later, his wife left him and he was abandoned trying to raise his kids in this devastating circumstance. Lost his ministry, lost his job, lost his, he was wondering if he's going to lose his family, lost his spouse, but he would get up in the middle of the night and worship Jesus. I never knew that about him until I saw it in the vision and it broke me and I realized that's why I can enter the presence of God when this guy leads worship. He forged a well-worn path to the throne room in his hardship, and he built a throne from which God could rule and reign from. So then I came. I had already prayed for this one guy. I thought, I'm going back to him. <laughs> so I laid hands on him, and I saw him. He was a little gray-haired man, white hair, full head of hair, but all white, and uh, I'm getting closer to that. And I'm praying for him, and all, all of a sudden I saw him with his head, but he was enormous. He had this armor on. His chest was like out here. He could have put a TV tray on his chest and ate from it. I mean, these two big slabs of meat, you know. I mean, he was like massive. His arms were huge, and he had this armor on, and it was, I, I remember it being about this thick, and it was molded into like this real He-Man looking physique, you know. And at the top, it had this curl, and it had deep gouges. The gouges were probably this deep. So he'd been through some battles, and he was sitting there just, I mean, his arms. So I opened my eyes, and there's little Ray. And then I closed my eyes, big Ray. And I closed, <laughs> opened my, you know, closed them, and there's big Ray again. And I saw, all of a sudden, I saw this black cloth come down in the sky, and it came around him, and he was fighting. And, and uh, he was trying to get out from underneath it. And while he's doing that, I heard these words, the struggle of the son is the sin of the father. The struggle of the son is the sin of the father. And then I saw him finally pull that black cloth off and his armor was gleaming and he had victory. And then the Lord said this, 
serve lentil stew. And I knew exactly what he meant. Now let me give you the backstory on this gentleman. He's a wonderful man of God. He pastored for some 50 years. I believe he has seven daughters, maybe six, and a whole bunch of grandkids. Matter of fact, I had the privilege of doing their 50th anniversary wedding vow ceremony, uh, you know, renewing their vows. And, and every other year, they would rent this entire Bible camp and have all their kids and grandkids. And I mean, they'd pack this whole place just with the immediate family. So all these daughters, he had one son, and I remember being at the camp because their son brought his husband. Their son was a very educated doctor, was married to a Hollywood producer, and they'd adopted this beautiful little girl. And I watched this family love their son and their son-in-law well. And I watched the sometimes awkward interaction of the little grandkids with their uncle, their two uncles who are married to each other. And I was painfully aware of the hard conversations that had to be had. And their son knew their stance on his choices, but they loved him well. And it was a beautiful picture of grace. And I was, I was just amazed at how this family navigated that. The whole family was walking with Jesus except this one son. And I knew while I was praying that that was the battle. The battle over that whole scenario was what I was seeing. And when the cloth came on him, I, I became aware of how the enemy had tried to accuse this man and say, your son struggles, your sin, it's your fault. And it was the shame of that. It was trying to take him off this, this, the, the, the ground of his identity. And it was a battle of a lifetime. And I saw how he broke through into victory. And there was tremendous victory. And I, I understood then, because I, there's times I would tell people, I'd say, hey, if you need a breakthrough in your family, go have that man over there, the white-haired guy, and his little, little wife there. A, that's a man and a woman of God. And they, are, they, are, they carry grace for breakthrough in families. I never knew why. I didn't understand it. But I knew it was there. And so I'd tell them, go get prayed for by that couple. But in that moment, I realized why he carried such authority. Because in the midst of tremendous heartbreak, he kept pressing through and believing. He kept praying. He refused to accuse God or allow the enemy to accuse him. He, he refused to allow his theology or his identity to be determined by his son's struggle. And the Lord gave him a promise. He said, he said that his son, he said, it's not going to be like you want, but it'll be better than you thought, better than you ever wanted. And the ironic thing is I, I stood there watching him in this battle, and I knew he'd secured the victory, and the Lord told me, tell him, serve lentil stew. Now, some of you know where that's coming from. There's, in, in the book of uh, 1 Samuel, towards the end, it's speaking of David's mighty men. I think it was, was it Benaniah? It says that he and some other buddies were on this lentil patch, and the Philistines came, and everybody else abandoned it, but he stood his ground in the lentil patch, and the Lord brought about a great victory that day. And essentially what the Lord was saying is this, that your battleground can be actually become a garden out of which you feed others your victory. That if you will stand your ground and refuse to accuse God but keep worshiping God and not allow it to define you because the real battle was not the conversion of his son, the real battle was the accusation against God and against him. And that's what secured the victory. You see, David went through a lot to establish the presence. And the fact is, if you are going to go after God with your own heart, you're going to go through some things. Because the enemy will target you, and God will also use that to take more ground for his kingdom. It's like when Jonathan, Saul's son, says to his armor bearer, come, let's go up to the Philistines and see if maybe they want to fight. And if they, if they start talking smack with us, we'll know the Lord's in it. That's his fleece. And the picture is this. 
the son of the king is out to pick a fight. You're the bait. And if you hang around him, you'll end up in a squabble. And that is the Christian life. And God wants to use your life and he wants to use this church to establish something in the spirit. And your prayers and your worship are at their best and their most valuable when you're going through something hard and you still stand your ground and you declare his goodness in the midst of that thing. And you sanctify that ground and you glorify him and you refuse. When, when life seems to when, when life seems to lie to you and redefine God, it seems to contradict what the word says about him. And you say, I, I don't understand why this is happening. I don't understand what's going on. I don't understand why God's allowed it. But I do know this. God is good. And you stand that ground. I'm telling you, there's something that shifts in the spirit. And what this region needs are those who will take that stand. And Thank God those opportunities don't always come along. But when they do, take advantage of them. When you go through hardship, I'm telling you, those are the most valuable moments in your life. In the death of a loved one, in a diagnosis you never planned on, in the loss of a job or the breakdown of a relationship, in those heartbreaking moments are the times where you can establish a firm throne from which God will begin to rule and reign and he'll take ground. The way God takes ground is through the life of his saints when they're in a struggle and they establish his throne in those moments. This has been the LifePoint Church Sermon of the Week. For more resources, visit us at lifepoint.cc.